This is The UU Perspective with your host, Sharon Merrill. Welcome to episode number eight of the UU Perspective, where we provide weekly interviews with today's most inspiring Unitarian Universalists. Again, I'm Sharon Merrill, and I'm from Cleveland, Ohio, and a member of the Unitarian Universalist Society of Cleveland. This show is going to focus on UU sharing their involvement in the community and the impact that they are making through their passion to make a difference. You'll hear what they've discovered in their journey, what they've done and how they've made a difference, and the impact they hope to see for the future. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the conversations from your fellow UUs around the world. You're going to hear from Reverend Joe Cherry. He is the full-time minister at the UU Society of Cleveland, and he has been there for about the past year now and has been a full-time minister for about four years. He comes to Cleveland from the Central Valley of California, and he has been the only minister for three counties inside of California all at once. His home church is the First Unitarian Society of Chicago, and he's a graduate of the Meadville Lumbar School. Joe also has his partner, Denis, who is a minister at the East Shore Church in the Cleveland, Ohio area. And today you're going to hear some great stuff on just talking about how do we express our faith, let people know about our faith fully. And what's the big hurdle to get over in order to express UUism? And are you ever at a loss for words to explain Unitarian Universalists to people? And think about a moment in your life, in your faith, since being a UU that brought tears to your eyes. And if you can think of that, then that's what you should be talking about. So let's hear Reverend Joe expound upon that and let's enjoy the conversations. Here's Joe. Okay, you use so let's get started. I am here with Reverend Joe Cherry, and I've already given you a little information about him, but Joe, I want you to go ahead and tell everybody who you are and what your uh, role in the UU community is. Hello, so my name is Reverend Joe Cherry, and I am the minister of the Unitarian Universalist Society of Cleveland. This is my fourth year in full-time ministry as an ordained minister. My home church is the First Unitarian Society of Chicago, where I was, um, I had many roles. I started off as a Sunday school teacher, and uh, little by little, they developed me into a confident leader, which then led me into seminary. Some of them early on had sort of pegged me as a likely candidate and had intentionally worked me into leadership in a time when I didn't know that I was a leader. Really? So what were the things they were picking up on? Well, first they had me be a Sunday school teacher, and then they involved me in the Religious Education Council. Uh Uh-huh. I remember saying at the time, because you you have to run for the position um, in my little bio, that I didn't know much, but I knew enough to do whatever Madeira told me to do. And she's one of the the church matriarchs, Mm -hmm. you know. Um, And I I knew at the time that I'd been looking for the Unitarian Universalist my whole life, but I hadn't realized that they were meeting without me before. 
And, um, yeah, I really, when my mom came, I even remember about three years, my mom came to visit me. My dad stayed home and, uh, she came to church. So, Mm -hmm. of course, like she wore a skirt and the whole deal. I'm like, that's not what you do here, but she wasn't gonna. So, we went to church and, um, at the end of the service on the way walking home, my mom said to me, you've been looking for these people your whole life. Oh, wow. These are really your people, aren't they? And I said, yep. She goes, your whole life, I can see that you've been looking for them. Wow. So when I was in seminary, um, I was in seminary in Hyde Park, across the street from my home church at Uh Meadville Lombard Theological School. And Meadville Lombard is part of a seven-school consortium, a seven-seminaries consortium Mm. in Chicago. And so we get to take classes at other seminaries. Not and they, they take classes at our seminary. Mm-hmm. So to, I took a class on worship art, or like arts in the worship, and it was a theater class. And I'd never done any acting, and I was really nervous about it, which is why I should do it. So I did it. <laughs> and uh, there were eight of us, four of us from Meadville Lombard and four from the Lutheran School. It's literally called the Lutheran School of Theology. <laughs> uh, we're in the class, and we're getting to know each other, and... The four Lutherans are talking about their faith, and this woman said, you know, she talked about the moment when she was 14 and accepted Jesus Christ as her Lord and Savior. Mm -hmm. And then she said to us, do you have moments like that in your life? Wow. And they got very uncomfortable. Uh Uh-huh. Because it was an honest and gentle inquiry, but obviously that isn't what most of us go through as Unitarian Universalists. Uh So I said to her, I said, you know, no. I said, but I will tell you that if you talk to most Unitarian Universalists, they will describe the moment they first came to church and they sat down. And like that movie, that book by Terry McMillan, she's from my parents' hometown, by the way. Oh. Um, You know, waiting to exhale. They'll sit down and they will just go... So we don't really have a conversion experience the way that, like, Orthodox churches do. We have a, a homecoming experience. Yeah. Where we find, we realize we've come home. Right. That's cool. And so that's kind of what we have. Instead yep. of, like, this, you know, other experience, which, which is as real, I think, as ours. But that is what we do. We come home from wherever we were. Yeah. What was it like in England? Um, the funny thing about England is the phrase I kept hearing was the problem is here they also speak English because it's not the same, but it's still English. So there yeah. were things you would think you would understand and you wouldn't get it. Um, they gave me a list of words you shouldn't say in England. Really? That were common words in English in American parlance, which I'm not going to tell you about. I'll tell you later when we're off. <laughs> um, you know, and words they would like use the word scheme all the time. Which meant, to them meant plan. Oh, wow. But to obviously, for us, it has a whole different meaning. And that's the one example of, yeah. you know. Well, we have a scheme. And I was like, you can't say scheme in church. You're right. <laughs> like, yeah, I'm like, no, you can't say it in church. It's, you know, you got a plan. You can say, yeah. So things like that. You know what I mean? It's also wow. English, but it's different. They're the churches, they call themselves Unitarians and Free Christians. Oh. They're, they don't have the Universalist side that we have. Okay. Um, they aren't any more really theistic than we are, generally speaking. Okay. But, you know, it was illegal to be anything but Church of England until the 1880s. Ah. 
So most of their churches are sort of down back alleys and stuff. These little chapels. Not all, but many of them are. And so the church I served in Duckenfield, which is just outside of Manchester, had a doxology they sang every Sunday. Uh Um, And so they're also looking for a free and responsible search for truth and meaning. But it looks a little more... It looks a little more Christian, although it's not, really. Okay. There's maybe, uh, like, half a tick closer to it. You know, they're still Unitarians. They still have the unity idea, and they're still... That's how it goes, and... Uh, the congregations, then, are probably small? Oh, they're very small. Okay. The congregation I served might have been 60 people. Okay. And that was a bigger church. Wow. The chapel, the, you know, the new chapel they built in 1836... Okay. <laughs> which replaced the old chapel from 1707, which had fallen down in a storm. Oh. Was a chapel that sat, um, it was two levels and sat a thousand people. And at one time they filled it and they had a Sunday school. They, they were, the church was so old that they had a Sunday school when there wasn't public schools. Okay. It was a five story Sunday school. Oh my gosh. They taught the entire town to read and write. Whoa. Because of their belief in education. Okay. So they built a five, literally a five-story Sunday school. They taught all the kids in town, who, because, of course, it was Industrial Revolution, and they all worked sure. six days a week. They taught the kids all to read and write. It's a pretty awesome history. And that's how it is kind of in England. They have this different history. You know, the British Unitarians went to India, uh-huh. into, into the Kazi Hills, and they established something like 80 schools, but not a single church. Are they into the social justice and doing... Yes, they are. Well, they have been. They went to India to do that stuff. They taught all the kids to, skip, to, to read and write. Uh-huh. You know, so they do... It's a different kind of social justice there. It's not... Um, it's a different form of racism and classism there than here. Sure. Um, and so the, the social justice work looks slightly different. But they're pushing... They were pushing for gay marriage there, and they're pushing for okay. other things like that. So I like to say, I think it's true that most Unitarian Universalists around the world are cousins. We don't have the exact same set of goals because they're local, but we have the same idea about making the world a more fair, more just place. And you can go to a church in England or Canada or India or, you know, Vietnam or Australia and you could feel comfortable because you recognize that they're still your people. Yeah. Even though our experiences are vastly different. And it's been my experience that when you go to Unitarian churches elsewhere mm-hmm. and you tell them that they're Unitarian, you're Unitarian, you get a, an extremely warm and familiar welcome. Nice. All right. Amazing. I bet. Yeah. What about and in Vancouver? Kind of so that church was a 450 member, pretty big church, second biggest church in Canada. They call themselves Unitarians, not Unitarian Universalists. So it took me a long time to get back to saying Unitarian Universalist. And the same thing, science, mind, reason, with some depth that changes it from just an interest to something important and spiritual. You know, the same kind of people, same kind of, you know, struggles that we have here, that we had in Chicago, that we had in California. You know, we're all cousins. I mean, we all have the same. I couldn't accept the the orthodox answers when I was a kid thing. Um, I felt I felt betrayed by Orthodox religion. Some people have been, of course, generational Unitarians and Universalists, yeah. but most of us have not. And those that have not have come looking for something and found it here. And sort of my one thing I, that I would like to have different is I would like us, 
who have come in from somewhere else to find a way to heal the pain that we left behind rather than sitting in it. What do you think the biggest pain is that people are expressing when they're coming into UUism? Um, with a very wide and therefore messy brush, I will say they feel let down. I mean, we live in a majority Christian world and a majority Christian nation, mm-hmm. and most will come from Christianity. And yeah. like our own faith, there is what Christianity is on paper and what it is in reality, right? right. We are not immune to that, you know. Um, I have known people in their 90s who are still angry about the God they learned about when they were six and how that God failed them because they haven't been taught in their new church to work through that. And it's one of my one of my missions to get people to work through that. That's cool, yeah. Because I don't want people to be held captive by that any longer. That seems like a terrible way to live. And so I try to, I hope that part of my ministry is about getting people to let go of the, the pain of that. How do you see that happening? Partly I use language that kind of makes them itch a little bit. Partly, I, I sort of push on the envelope around that a bit. And I say things like, you know, like on Easter, our, you know, today our Christian friends are celebrating this thing. You know, um, and I told our Buddhist friends are doing this or our Jewish friends are doing that. And a way to show people that we're not them, but we can be friends with them. Mm-hmm. You know, and there was a woman in my, in my congregation in California who had a list of like 14 words that really made her crazy. And she made the mistake of giving them to me. Not really, but I could always tell because she would make a face if I used them. And when I left, she said to me, so many words that have bothered me for so many years, I'm okay with now. I'm free of them. I'm no longer their prisoner because of what you made me do. And I said, good. And actually, I was really very pleased. I don't think people should be captive to words that bother them anymore. So it sounds like you do it through just talking to people in sermons. It wouldn't be like having a UU 101 class and getting over the pain. Oh, we have one pain. of those. Janine and I wrote a, a, a curriculum called Church 101. Oh. About how to behave in church. Because lots of people, I had a request from someone who was an, an unchurched kid and didn't know what to do in church. And they asked me to write a curriculum. Okay. So Janine and I wrote a curriculum about what to do in church. So what I think it's about is... People have pain, and they, it's easier to avoid it than to look at it. But if you're in church, and you're, you're in the middle of Sunday morning worship, and the minister that you've come to trust says to you, I want you to really not be held captive by this word anymore. I think if you're actually practicing a liberal faith, you're going to be forced to consider that. It isn't my job to tell you what to think or what to do. It's my job to offer them for opportunities to grow. So one of the things that we did is, in California, they were always talking about the way things used to be when this was a fellowship, and I got so tired of hearing that. So I went back to an old order service, and I made them do the old order service, like yeah. with the gendered language and everything. And I put in a little like um, notice at the top of the order saying, today we're doing this really weird throwback thing. This is not what we usually do. <laughs> In case people were visiting. Throwback Sunday. We had a throwback Sunday. <laughs> and there was a confession of faith. And there was a confession of, you know, wrongdoing. And every hymn ended in amen. And so this particular person I was talking about, when we sang amen, she just looked at me and went, 
Amen. And afterward, she said to me, I haven't said that word in 30 years. I said, yeah, I know. You looked at me. Ah. She's like, I know. I glared at you. I said, you did. But she said, now I'm thinking about why. And that, to me, is a big part of what ministry is about. Mm -hmm. It's about helping people come to a place of greater peace. And I do it by being a little needling, you you know. But I also, but I couldn't needle if people didn't trust me. And that's where I think, that's where my authority really lies. I'm a very trustworthy person. I'm very upfront. There's not a lot of guessing with me. And people know that. So mm-hmm. when I when they don't agree with me, that's okay. But they know, even if they don't agree with me, I will be there for them. And that's what, for me, what a big part of ministry is. Here's where we don't agree. And I'm okay with that. You know, and here's where I think you're being, where you're letting yourself down by not engaging in this word or this concept. And so um, that's a big part of how I practice ministry is a little, uh, a little gentle pushing a little effervescing as I like to say um, people into places I've said before as your minister it isn't important to me what you believe or how you know where you end up what's important to me is that you're engaged in the process I don't need you to think or believe like I do if I did I wouldn't be a universalist what I need to know is your minister is you're engaged I would love, as one person to another, for you to find a place of peace. I would love, if, if, if that's what my ministry was, if my ministry was a thing that helped people find peace, I couldn't ask for more than that. So let's talk about what's a big project you've worked on before. I guess I have a, a project that if you looked at it visually would look like two lines that cross each other. Like, you know, and so they would like be far apart and come together and back apart again. Okay. And those two things are my sort of impulse to be evangelical about my faith, which people find sometimes hard to take because it's not our usual way of doing things, but it's on the way to bring people to peace. So I let myself be somewhat unconventional in Unitarian Universalism because I feel like it's bringing people to something. So I'm not afraid to talk about my faith. I'm not afraid to talk about why it's literally a, a faith that has saved people's lives. The thing that I think we don't do well we don't talk about the full metronome swing, right? We talk about where the click is in the middle and kind of maybe 10 degrees on the other side. But uh. really, it swing, life swings way further than that, as does this faith. And this faith has... Um, I know uh, this faith has saved people's lives. I've had people tell me that specifically, so I know it is true. And we have had people die for this faith so that we can have this faith. And we don't talk about either one of those. Now, I tend to shy away from the part about people having died for this faith because it feels a little martyr, like pro-martyr and a little Christian to me. But it also, I think, gives a gravity to it. You know, um, in the 19th century and earlier, universalists, because they didn't believe in hell, were not allowed to defend themselves in court. Because, of course, you put your hand in the Bible, it's where I tell the truth, nothing about the truth will help you God. Well... You know, sort of the takeaway from that is if you lie, God will put you in hell. Since the universals didn't believe in hell, they couldn't often testify in court. And they would go to prison. They would lose all their property because they said, well, God will love me no matter what. So both the Unitarians and the Universalists had difficulty because they believe in the character of the person. And that is a motivation, not a fear of hell. In a book called The World Turned Upside Down, which I read in college, there's this quote 
where it talks about um, why people were motivated to be good people and nothing to do with the threat of hell, but rather they wanted to be good people. And it's a, it's a nice quote, I'll send it to you. Okay. And this is what calls us for centuries to be the people we are. It's the call of character, mm-hmm. not the threat of punishment mm-hmm. that makes us be who we are. And so we have this really rather dynamic faith that says, come into our sanctuary. You can be at home here. It doesn't matter who you love or how much money you have or how much pigment your skin does or doesn't have. It doesn't matter that you stole a pencil yesterday. It doesn't matter that you were in prison. You can be at home here. And I think we shy away from that because it feels a little emotional. It feels a little risky. And, um, I mean, I certainly feel the tension around risk like that. But it's how I feel about us. And I'm not alone. And, um, but still, I struggle with the risk of saying that. Of appearing too emotional driven. It feels too much like other places that are frightening. And so it's not, it's not a done deal. It's not a package I've tied up in a bow. And I mean, I struggle with it too. But I think that's the thing that we should work on. And that's been my project for the last 20 years. Is how to more fully let everyone know that this faith is for them or can be for them. Mm-hmm. Now there are people in the world who need who need some their minister to tell them this is how to live. And I do not and will not stand in judgment on those people. It is how it has to go for them. And yeah. that's fine. Yeah. And there are times I know when I wish I were more like that. I would feel less confused, less alone in the world. My mom once said to me that she was jealous of Christians in a way because they never seem to be really alone. And I believe that. Yeah. And I think it's very true. And there are times when I'm jealous of that. I wish I could feel like I knew something that certainly, or that much certainty. And I do know that with some certain. I knew. I know some things with that much certainty. Sure. Not that much certainty. You know. I mean. I know that people are people. And they're going to make mistakes, and they're going to. They're generally good, and you know. Um, but that's not the same as being able to say with real honesty. Yeah. I know that Jesus is with me. And and I can't say that with any honesty, and mm. therefore I don't. And I think our churches are full of people like that, for whom integrity is much more important. And so if you're the kind of person who who has always questioned their life, who have always wanted to know why, you will maybe you will probably feel comfortable with us. You know, if you're a person who knows that Jesus Christ came to the earth to save humanity, you may not be as comfortable with us. And I hope that when those people come to our door and then leave, I hope they will go knowing that the people they left behind them, that church, wish them well. And I wish that I knew that our people knew that wish them well more. A woman who's been coming to church regularly, a visitor, who is uh, an African-American woman and uh, a Christian, and she's been coming with a friend. She said to me last month, I'm a Christian woman, and I said, I know. She said, but every time I come here, do you say something that speaks to me? I said, I'm really thrilled about that. And she said, and more, I know that you're not Christian, but you are so careful to be gentle and respectful of my Christianity, which made me want to cry. That a person could feel like, this isn't my faith, but these people are caring. I mean, what more can I ask for than that? And that's what I want. You know, we are 
the questioning people. We will probably never take anything without a bajillion tons of proof, which is our gift and our burden. But that being the case, I would like anyone to walk in who walks in our door to feel comfortable, to not feel judged for believing in something. You yeah. know what I mean? So that's been my long, long-term mission. Um, my other sort of mission is my dad's a truck driver and my mom was a, wait- was a waitress and a secretary. And I vowed that I would never give a sermon my parents couldn't understand. I've been in many a sermon that's very, very well written and with, you know, 46 footnotes, words that I don't know. When I first started going to church, I took a notebook with me because there were words I, I wouldn't know. And I vowed I would never do that. And I haven't. Um, and my mom listens to every sermon I give. Aww. She also listens to my partner's sermons, which I think she likes better. <laughs> um, which I like better too. Um, but. You know, I vow that people who don't have a master's degree come to my church. And what the, the the funny side note to that is people who are ESL can get everything then. Because in my church in California, there were a couple of Japanese nationals. And here, there are a couple of Chinese nationals that uh-huh. come to church, and their families do. And they, you know, they're smart women, but yeah. their second language is English. And they get everything. So that's my other thing, is to really sort of eradicate this idea that we're all Harvard graduates. Because we're not. I mean, our faith requires an educated clergy. Every minister has to have a master's degree. Which is fine. I mean, I worked hard on mine, I got mm-hmm. it, and I have it on my wall, and I'm thrilled I worked, you know. It gives gives us, us a certain breadth. Breadth, B-R-E-A-T-D-H. A certain wideness of outlook. Because we've been enforced to be exposed to all these things. And that's terrific. I don't ever want to be the minister, though, who forgets that, you know, there are people who, there were high school dropouts in my last church, and I want them to feel as comfortable as the people with PhDs. So that's my other, like, okay. mission. And what do you think, as far as being Unitarian Universalists and sharing our faith, what is the biggest hurdle that we need to get through to be able to <laughs> I've never thought about this you you to people to um so I think I think we need to stop being embarrassed that we're religious people right that's a big part of it some were embarrassed to think we're embarrassed to let others know that we have a church right because in our minds somewhere people go to church are suckers and we can't we have not yet rectified that in our mind but is it saying we're a Unitarian Universalist too, though? Yes. Yeah. We're a different kind of church. I mean, that's yeah. just the bottom line. Right. You know, um, several years ago, there was this big push to have an elevator speech, right? And so I boiled down my sort of take on Unitarian Universalism in six words. One God, many names, no hell. Now, obviously, that's not a very detailed, you know, but it's enough to get people's attention. They want to ask more about it. Sure. You know, what do you mean many names? What do you mean no hell? You know, and the thing is, we are sort of embarrassed to admit that we have a faith because I think so much of the larger culture talks about faith as being only one thing. And so, and we're not that thing. In fact, most of us are quite upset about that thing and the way that thing treats people. And we don't want to associate ourselves with that. But what we're not doing by freely associating with that word is we're, we're seeding that word. We're giving the, that word away to those who would misuse it, you know? And so anytime in the news they talk about, you know, Muslim terrorists or they talk about the Christian right or the Zionist 
Jewish people, what they're saying is these are the only people who have a right to these titles. Except that's not true. And if we don't start standing up and saying, my faith calls me to work for the rights of every person, and even those who aren't, those who aren't people, like the earth and the water, my faith calls me into action. I had a friend say, that when this discussion about gay marriage was going on in California, this one minister said that her, his faith, of course it was a man, his faith wouldn't allow him to marry people of the same sex. And this colleague of mine stood up and said, I'm being denied the right to practice my faith fully because my faith believes that every person deserves to be treated equally. And that includes two men or two women who want to marry each other. So you are denying me full access to my faith. And we need to go say those yeah, kind of things. right. By keeping this person from living a full life, you're interfering with the way I practice my faith. And people don't like when I use the word faith either. It makes them itchy. But it is, it is my faith. It's my belief. This is what I believe, mm -hmm. you know. So that's what I think we need to stop being... We need to rec begin to reclaim words. We've given all power away to. Well, and it's so easy, too, for us to get stuck on spouting off the first principle, you know. Oh, well, we're about the inherent worth and dignity of everyone. Yeah. You know, so... It, we're lost for words, it seems like. Right, and we're lost for words in part because we couldn't... We were so worried that everyone would feel included, we couldn't define anything very clearly. We were we were so concerned about casting our net widely enough that everyone could feel comfortable in it, that it, it lost any depth. I thought it was really interesting that Tom Chulak talked about reversing our seventh and first principles. So that the first principle would be the interdependent web of all existence of which we are a part. So yeah, that the part of the problem was we were making we were so at the time it was a radical act to make sure that everyone felt like they had a place at the table. Yeah. That the table got so big you couldn't hear each other. You know? Yeah. And so now I think we need to get back to a place where we can be clear about what we believe. You know, when I first became a Unitarian Universalist, it was, well, we're not that, and we're not that, and we're not that, and we're not that. It would drive me crazy. Yeah, you can't explain yourself as what you're not. Yeah, you can't <laughs> define yourself by negation. It doesn't work. Yeah. So who are we? This is why I love the whole standing on that side of love campaign. You know, we're the love people. When um, we were in Arizona, um, we were wearing our yellow shirts, and I have a clergy shirt that has a little collar. It's the same color. A little heart in the sleeve. It's very cute. And uh, my partner and I were having dinner, and the waitress said to us, "Oh, you're from you're those love people." I mean, how awesome is that? They she could tell by the color of the shirt we were wearing that we were. The, she had no idea what Unitarian Universalists were, what our theology was. She knew that we were the love people, and then she said, "Oh, you're ministers." It must be really great to be ministers of the love people. And I said, "It is in fact amazing to be a minister of the love people," and that. I'm, it was fantastic. Yeah. I could have been happy, happier about it. She had no idea who we were. But she knew that everywhere she looked, these people were wearing, were wearing these yellow shirts with a giant heart on them yeah. and the word love on it. What could cool. be better? How can we be out there? What's the best way that we can place ourselves as Unitarian Universalists and be able to speak it with ease? Um, I think it's going to take some personal reflection time for every person to find out where they can where they can find that thing that they can say 
easily. I mean, I have an advantage in that I took four years out of my adulthood and went to seminary to spend a lot of time thinking about what yeah. that was for me. We as individuals and collectively have to find a way to talk about what is it about Unitarian Universalism or what is it about you that makes you one of us? Hmm. No, don't, huh? What's the, that's the question. What is it? Oh, you're asking me? I'm asking you. <laughs> the first principle, no. <laughs> but if that's where you're starting, that's fine. Oh, man. Well, it's that shared belief that, I mean, we could create such a huge difference with so many people and be so inclusive of everyone and be able to be out there, you know, when, it, when it's social justice issues or, you know, when it's the simplest thing inside your church too. I mean, you you have the freedom to speak. You have the freedom to agree to disagree, which I think is great, too. And the responsibility to listen. Well, yes, right. So, I, I think to be able to agree to disagree, you have to be listening, too. It's only fair. I'm sure it's not the way it always is, but, you know. <laughs> but, yeah, it's like, I don't know, that's what it at least is for me. The thing I would like to ask everybody, and I'm not going to ask you right now because it doesn't seem fair. Um, the thing I would like to ask everybody is, what moment in your faith life since you became a Unitarian Universalist, what moment brought tears to your eyes? Brought tears to your eyes. Because that is what you should be talking about. Yeah, I definitely have to think about that one. <laughs> And people do, but I think that might be an an upcoming sermon. Oh, yeah. What is the moment that made you cry, that touched your soul? Not that you really liked, not that you were comfortable with, but the thing that really caught you off guard and made you say, I'm so grateful for this. Yeah. That is what we should be talking about. Yeah. I like that. You know, there was a minister... Mm -hmm who was in New York, or now in California. And she did a lot of work on same-sex marriage in New York. Mm-hmm. And um, when I said to her, um, you know, I was deeply grateful for the work that she'd done. I said, and I, and I expressed my surprise a little. I said, you know, you're a, a woman with a husband and two kids, and you don't really have a pony in this race, and I'm just really grateful that you would work on my behalf. And because she's, you know, a mentor and she loves me, she said, look, um, I'm a Unitarian Universalist, and this is my pony. And I'm not working just for you. I'm working to make this world a better place. And that is what my faith is about. And it made me cry. She's like, it, it, is, it, it, it reminded me of the quote, I am human and therefore nothing al- human is alien to me, you know. She taught, She showed me in a way that was real that I work on behalf of women's rights. When women, you know, I work against. I've I've worn heels to raise money for a women's shelter. Um, I, you know, I'm a member of the Religious Freedom Religious Coalition for Reproductive Choice. I'm going to be my problem directly, but I work on those things because they're important. And she was saying it's important to me too. And so, I again, I feel like if we could all sit and spend some time and think about when something happened in the context of our faith that moved you to tears. Those are the stories that we should be sharing. So you can say to your coworker 
or your friend, I found this place, and I would like you to experience it with me. It might really speak to you. Mm-hmm. That's why I came along. I was dating a guy who said to me, I think you might like my church. I'd like you to come along. Yeah. And that's what it's going to take, is all of us saying, yeah. I think you might like my church. I'd like you to come with me on a Sunday. It's the personal invitation. Do you? Um, did you bring your quote? Um, so, I was at a workshop, and we were talking about writing prayers. The prayer goes like this. If we have any hope of improving the world and ourselves, we must be bold enough to step into our discomfort, brave enough to be clumsy there, and loving enough to forgive ourselves and each other. May we, as a people of faith, be so bold, so brave, and so loving. And that's the prayer that I wrote. Cool. It's a good prayer, hey? Oh, yeah. Definitely. Yeah. It gets used a lot. I'm shocked. Yeah, because you said it was published, so it's getting used and people everywhere. Really, they Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. they use it in Selma. Did they? They did. Yeah. At, like, at like the big worship service. Well, I was cool. really surprised. It's really flattering, So, but also, like... Yeah. Like, Has wow. a lot of meaning. Touching it, it the might, lives like you want to do. Yeah. yeah. And it's one thing to want to. It's another thing to, like, oh, my God, it's actually happening. It's a funny thing. Well, the last question, of course, to everyone is, how is Unitarian Universalism, as a religious denomination uniquely positioned to serve and impact society. I think the way that we can help our world is by using our experience that we have in walking with each other when we don't agree. So we practice interfaith life already all the time. You know, we are able and encouraged to use readings from the Christian text, the Jewish text, the Buddhist text, the Muslim text, the Bhagavad Gita. We know that there is wisdom in tucked away in every corner of our of the human experience, of the human endeavor. And so we are the people who already have the experience, like how to talk to the, the people at the masjid or how to talk to people at the temple. We already have a place to, st- we already know a place to start. And we can be the ones to help bridge from one group to another. We have obviously not total familiarity with all those faiths, but we have some familiarity with them. And we are the ones who can say, here is where the atheist and the agnostic and the Christian and the pagan and the Buddhist, here is a place that you can all share, you know. In the Dalai Jing, there's this image of a lump of clay that you hollow out to make a bowl, um, to make a vessel. It's the space in the middle of the vessel that makes it useful. So that is our space. That is our holy space where the humanist and the Christian can come together where the Buddhist and the nature worshiper and the pagan can come together. That space in the middle where we don't meet at an exact point, that is our holy space. It is where all our growth and magic, little um, magic happens, yeah. maybe big magic, who knows, happens there in that, in that space that we hold for each other. And because we hold that space all the time, we are the natural people to come to when space needs to be held. It is in our DNA. You know, a couple of years ago, when um, there was a senator, a Muslim senator elected in Minnesota, I think it was, mm-hmm. Keith Ryerson or something like that, and he got sworn in on 
the Quran, and there was a big giant stink about that. Do you remember that? Um, because, of course, when you go, go into office, you swear in the Bible, well, he is Muslim, so he swore in a Quran. There's a big stink about it. The Quran belonged, belonged to Thomas Jefferson, second president of the United States, and Unitarian. I mean, so this has been our thing for a long... This is not yeah. a new... From 1962, this is us. As It's deep in our DNA. And as the world becomes... There are more and more of us who are multiracial children. There are more and more of us who are multicultural children, multi-faith children. We are the place they can come. We are the bridge builders. You know, I mean, that's our, that is in our DNA. And I think that is how we can help change the world. We can help people who don't know each other meet. And we can hold the space for them as they meet and get to know each other. That's what I think. That's, right. that's one man's opinion. Okay. All right. Thank you, Joe, for being with us. Thank you for inviting me to this. Yeah, you bet. Thanks for joining us on the UU Perspective Podcast. Reverend Joe gave us a lot to think about as far as how do we express our faith and how do we talk about Unitarian Universalism to others. What is it that had it be a homecoming experience when you discovered that you were a UU. Let us know in the comments on the website. Let's hear about what everyone's experience was. So again, you can find us on iTunes and Stitcher Radio. Also, please download and subscribe, leave a review. Let us know who you'd like to hear in the future. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time.